안녕하세요. 어떻게 지내요? This week we are joined by North Korean tour organizers Toryo Group. We discussed some of the most wacky things that have happened in North Korea over the years, including Ric Flair's collision in Korea wrestling match, Dennis Rodman's visit, and also the 101 on visiting North Korea. Enjoy this week's episode of Travel Tribex. Salut. Welcome to the Travel Tribe Podcast. Can you tell me more about this, the collision in Korea? What was this? So Rick, the, the, the headline match was Ric Flair against Antonio Inoki. So he, he died recently. He was a Japanese politician. But prior to that, he was a Japanese wrestler who was the protege of a Korean wrestler from Japan, a, 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 a nationalistic wrestler who's, who's a national hero in, in North Korea. And um, Inoki has always had this quite, quite complex and close relationship with North Korea, like he's he's beloved of people there, despite being from Japan, which normally would would mean the, the exact opposite. Uh, Inoki famously fought Muhammad Ali in a mixed mixed martial arts in inverted commas um, match where Ali boxed and Inoki wrestled, which mm-hmm. it's it's as crap as it sounds. But, <laughs> um, but, in, but in Pyongyang, he fought uh, he fought Ric Flair in a in a wrestling. In a wrestling event in in the Mayday Stadium in front of 150,000 people. I mean, it sounds absurd. While Muhammad Ali sat there and watched. Obviously, it sounds like a fever dream, but it's the actual truth. So I was basically in the audience uh, as as North Koreans stood sort of with their mouths open, well sat with their mouths open as as as, as Ric Flair bounced from a great height, you know, onto onto various opponents, crushing them to death. And they thought, God, you know, this we're, we're actually watching people being murdered here they 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 couldn't understand that the basically the concept of wrestling for them wrestling is you know you 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 wear a belt and you get twisted over and you fall on your back and that's that this the theatrics of it just didn't it was only at the very end that they you heard this but throughout the the, the, that whole week people (laughs) were saying true is it not true is it not and that's the wonderful thing about uh, at north korea you know we you know the, the sort of perhaps one of the other sort of bizarre stories of that is like one of the things at customs is when when you sort of cross when you you sort of arrive and they're like the first someone's got the first iphone watch or whatever that's you know or, or someone's got you know a, the first uh computers books mm-hmm. everything anything that's new in the west you know at some time has to come through north korea and when it does come in it often comes in via tourists so you have mm-hmm. all these sort of questions like what is going on and then it comes on what's going on in the world and uh, yeah. i remember when we were filming um, the, the game of their lives in the Iraq war had sort of stopped, uh, you know, a week before. And we were telling people, they would go, I don't think so. And of course, later they find out. And that also sort of, of course, makes them question what's going on inside and the information they get. So mm-hmm. rather a bizarre sort of, but a bizarre leap of, you know, just by, by bringing in wrestlers and by bringing in <laughs> something that is so obviously different, it, it awakens them to the world outside. Uh, who who is the one who is in charge of coming up with that idea? That's kind of a really interesting way to kind of introduce them to some of the some of the <laughs> Western media we have is introducing Ric Flair over there jumping off ladders and <laughs> having cage matches. Yeah, I, I I don't know who who came up with that idea actually, but uh, yeah, I think it was it was definitely it was. I mean, it was 
Yeah, it was Ric Flair's manager. If you, I mean, it's a good, it's a good fun film to watch, and it's it's a little bit absurd because it's a classic case of uh, 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 there's a couple of couple of uh, there's a guy interviewed who was sure that you know everyone's the police, everyone's sort of got a gun and threatening them, which wasn't the case. I was there. It's certainly not what I saw. Um, but there we go. It's 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 well worth a watch. You also had quite a unique wedding out there with two of your foreign tour guides getting married. What was that like? What was interesting is that it was actually an official wedding. I mean, we had to get permission or, or sort of the North Koreans had to get permission for it. So they were well and truly uh, the, the first sort of foreign couple married in Pyongyang. Um, and then perhaps more unusual was that they, the North Koreans also had a sort of best man, a sort of master of ceremonies who was uh, absolutely hilarious. So, yeah, whoever says, you know, I mean, we all see one side of Korea, which is, you know, uh, it is a, a side of Korea that is is absolutely, uh, you know, as painted. But mm-hmm. I think the wonderful thing about being there and having been there, you know, now for, in Simon's case, sort of 20 years, in my case, sort of 30 years, is that we know people very well. And, of course, that humanity comes spilling out. And so what happens after they get married? Do they get to decide if they're going to stay in North Korea or move to America? Or what was oh, that decision thought, process thought like? I thought you were talking about the birds and the bees. That, that, right. decision, uh, was, that decision was already made. They, yeah. yeah. And it was North Korea lost out to the United States. What a choice. <laughs> it was our tour guide who'd... Uh, one of the, our, our, We always accompany any group that goes into the country. It's We give a big briefing before you travel in for about an hour so you're, you're comfortable and understand uh, basically the rules and regulations. And I think it has to be remembered that North Korea, we don't treat it as a holiday. It's an incredible mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. If you like, mm-hmm. it's the opposite of going to the Amazon. You know, you need to be prepared. Mm-hmm. And we then accompany a tour to make sure that, I suppose, sort of to interact between uh, uh, the first couple of days is so that the, the tourists and the guides, the North Korean guides, get on well and understand mm-hmm. uh, each other. And then then they run very smoothly. We we don't have problems. But that is because, you know, it, it is to be treated seriously. It's not a it's not a it's not a country to have a laugh in. And so these guides are from Western countries or where do they re- come from? There are, there are staff, right? So these are mm-hmm. the, the actual guides for every tour are from North Korea mm-hmm. and work for our partner there. And then we send along a member of our staff. So wherever they happen to be from, from Britain, we've had staff from the US, Finland, Hungary, Australia, all over, really. I mean, lots of lots of countries. Let's kind of bring this back a little bit. I'm kind of curious on how did this all get started? Where were kind of the, the grassroots of of beginning this this tour organization? Yeah, well, in 1990, I was a, trained as a landscape architect. And uh, in 1993, a great friend of mine, Josh, was in Beijing and had been working actually for TNT, the courier company, a bit like DHL, setting up an office there in um, Pyongyang. And I went over found China fascinating. And at that time, China and North Korea were pretty similar countries to visit. They were both very closed. Of course, China was just on the on the steps of sort of baby steps of opening up. But but it wasn't much difference between the two places. But I found North Korea fascinating. I found the architecture and, and the art very interesting and warm to it. And we decided to take a group of friends. And from then on, took more and more people in simply because we wanted to go back and the only way to go back in uh, when you're on a small budget is to run a small group of mates in and that you know over 10 years developed and and we started sort of probably taking in 100 people a year 
and and then at the end when Simon sort of took over the tourism, we were we were up to sort of a couple of thousand uh, almost. I mean, there's only four thousand foreigners visiting a year, but yeah, we were up to a thousand five hundred to two thousand people. So still, the probably one of the least countries visited in the world, but least visited countries in the world. But uh, uh, it has increased enormously. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would clarify that before the shutdown for COVID, there were hundreds of thousands of Chinese tourists visiting per year, mm-hmm. which hasn't always been the case. A lot of times people assume that, that there'd be lots of Chinese tourists, but there have been periods when there have been almost none. That market is very fickle. But for, let's say, 2016 to 19, there was a limit brought in to limit the amount of Chinese tourists visiting North Korea, limit brought in by the North Korean side, because they were at capacity. They were saying they wouldn't accept more than 1,000 people per day going to Pyongyang. And you know, it's a staggering number. As Nick said, the number of non-Chinese visitors, four to 5,000 a year. And suddenly, Chinese visitors going up to 1,000 a day, is, is a, that's a proper game changer. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the intention of Chinese tourists there are they going there for holiday or for business purposes? Oh, it's a holiday. These are all tourists, not not business mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a lovely story that they're, they're from. Uh, the most people who go, you, you tend to find are sort of in their sort of forties and fifties, big group, big groups, and they're being sent uh, by by their children so the kids can have a bit of a break there because you know parents they probably live with their parents. They send them off from the north on a sort of a, a busman's holiday, if you like, to re, you know, revisit their past. And uh, whilst they get a, you know, the, 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 the young couple have a bit of fun at home. And mm. the, the Chinese tourists tend to be much easier going. They're, they're, they're more interested in, uh, you know, buying ginseng, which is uh, yeah, a lot of shopping. Get there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and eating, you know, and just going around. Uh, it's sort of a lot easier Chinese tour groups than a, a Western tour group who tend to mm-hmm. sort of, you know, really be asking much more sort of sensitive questions, if you like, trying to find out, eke, uh, eke out from what they're seeing, you know, what's what's true, what's not true. And that's mm-hmm. another reason, really, why we go, why we accompany it, because, of course, we've been many times. So the guides, the North Korean guides will tell you one thing. It may not be the whole truth. So we might be able to sort of elaborate, if you like, on that. And likewise, mm-hmm. there's a whole, all sorts of questions you get asked by tourists saying you know oh, well are we being followed is this happening except so you can sort of you can answer those as well mm-hmm. and so kind of while we're going down this path what was the process like working with the government um or the organizations in order to begin bringing tourists from western countries there well when i started first of all i i, I think both simon and i what we were surprised is we don't actually deal. We deal with a government organization. Everything is state owned. There isn't any private company whatsoever. But the people we deal with are professional uh, travel companies. So they they are involved in all the sort of permissions, granting the visas, etc. For us, that's the process of just applying. They then sort of work in, on the government side. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I think this is one of the sort of you know, people sort of saying, "Oh, you know, you're 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 giving your money to the state." Actually, no, you're giving your money to a travel company that has to pay, you know, for the buses, for the transport, for the hotels, etc. And yes, it's all fungible the way the funds work, but but in the end, you are working with professional travel people, and mm-hmm. and that's their job. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. no Ministry of Tourism, so there's no government to deal with per se. If you take the 
approach that the government and the state are the same thing well in a country where everyone works for the state where do you draw the line because if you're you know picking apples on a state-owned farm then are you are you part of the government it seems not you know there's got to be a, a point at which the government runs out and and then you've just got a state-owned organization and as nick said the partners we have there they work for a company and what defines a company is a profit motive and so that's what their company is mandated to seek you know they they buy goods and services from their vendors and then they sell them on eventually down the line to tourists visiting the country so they're buying mm -hmm. hotel rooms they're buy they're buying vehicles they're buying fuel they're employing cooks they're employing guides drivers blah 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 etc you know so and their mandate is to achieve more income than their outgoings and this is this sounds so simple because it is because this is literally how every company in the entire world has ever operated that's mm -hmm. that is a fairly recognizable um phenomena to outsiders when i was kind of bringing up the fact uh, to a couple of people in my interest in in visiting north korea they kind of some of the arguments against were that you are helping uh financially support uh repression or or whatever what kind of arguments do you have uh, against that I'd ask, has the amount of repression reduced in the last three years? There have been no tourists. By that, by that rationale, presumably things have improved greatly in North Korea. The human mm -hmm. rights situation is is just, you know, spiffy now, and and so on. Because the fact is, you know, the state supports itself from a lot of different um, forms of income, and tourism mm -hmm. is one. But it's a pittance. And uh, some years, the last three years, for example, hugely loss making because the infrastructure for tourism is still there and still having to be paid for without any income. But I'm not going to say it's OK because it's not much money in a bad system. But the reality is that people want to know some things about North Korea and as much or as little as you can learn um, on a tour. And it's more than most people would expect. The idea that by not going there, you're somehow assisting people is a myth. This is something mm -hmm. to make people feel better about themselves. Not one of the people we take is interested in going to North Korea because they want to provide financial support for the government. That's that's just not a real thing. There mm -hmm. are some uh, friendship groups, kind of fellow traveler, lefty societies that that maybe are more interested in that kind of thing. But the we people we take, they are, you know, open-minded and worldly people who understand that the the world is a complicated place. And that, um, you know, there isn't an inherent uh, act of support in going somewhere. I mean, I've lived, I've I've heard that suggestion made many, many times, of course. But also, I lived in China more than 20 years. And nobody ever said to me, you must really be a huge fan of the Communist Party of China. <laughs> nobody, and you know why they didn't do that? Because that would be idiotic. But yet somehow when it's transferred to North Korea, it's like, oh, you've been to North Korea. That must mean that you're a supporter of the North Korean system. I mean, it, it doesn't it doesn't compute. It's it's a leap of logic, which is from logic to illogic. So, you know, the fact is, if you do support the government of North Korea, you know, bully for you. But, you know, a tour with us is not the way to show that. You know, if you're interested in what North Korea is like, then a tour is, you know, a really good way to to start to find out about it. Yeah. And also, it, I think financially, but, Simon, you can say just that, you know, are you supporting the regime by coming in as a tourist it's it's certainly a strand and if you don't want to bring your money into the country then certainly don't visit but relatively speaking 
I think that where, where we sort of spend a difference is, yes, you are bringing, you know, you are coming in with finance, you are spending it in North Korea. So some of your money, once it's sort of gone through the system and they've, the travel company have paid for, you know, their guides, et cetera, et cetera, a, a, a part of that will get there. What we as a company have always had the philosophy of is, is uh, engagement. And that that's included three documentaries to the BBC, a feature film, et cetera, because that access that we we really value and understand that there's as much need for the West to understand what's going on in North Korea as for the North Koreans to understand what's going on. So both sides benefit from that. And I think you you can't put them in parallel. I'm not trying to, to compare, but there is a very big positive swing of one, us knowing a lot more about North Korea by our access, by our films, et cetera, and sport exchanges, what have you. But there's a damn sight more uh, value as well the North Koreans uh, being exposed to the world outside. It's yeah. small and, and it's just one, you know, we're one tiny company. But if you if you go to our website and have a look what we do, uh, it's, it's yeah, we can stand by it pretty, pretty yeah, much you'd, so. You'd struggle to make a consistent case that because North Korea is so isolated, most people mm-hmm. think too isolated, that the solution to that is to not go there, not interact with anyone and to isolate them even further. That would, I would, you know, that would, make me scratch my head a little bit but that's the position that you find a lot of people coming from actually as as a kind of not really thought out position you know it's the kind of place that raises the emotion of like oh hang on a second that seems wrong but you know there's a lot of things that may seem wrong but if you approach it from the right perspective you think about what you're doing and you're introspective about it then you know it's it's a place which to a lot of people brings a lot of value and as nick said no more so than the literally thousands, maybe tens of thousands of North Koreans directly and indirectly um, employed in interacting with foreigners, which is something that most North Koreans don't get to do. And North Korea is rightly criticized by the outside world for these isolationist tendencies, whereas here we are in an industry which which acts explicitly against those tendencies. So I, I think it's a positive thing to encourage interaction. Yeah, I love that what Simon says. It's, it's a country where... Simon sort of puts it, he says, it's a country where you really, you couldn't do less engagement because there simply is almost none from the very start. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so a majority of people have never set foot in North Korea and have not been on a tour. Uh, it's, It's kind of very rare to meet people who have done so. Can you kind of describe what's it like to go on a tour with your company through North Korea and maybe highlighting things of, for example, a day-to-day, what's the safety like, what do people get to experience, what are kind of the biggest, uh, let's say, takeaways people get on visiting North Korea? That's the single biggest question I've ever been asked. So I would get get comfortable because I'm not quite sure how to answer that in how much time have you got? But yeah. if I start on that, essentially all all tours are organized tours. So if you go, if you want a bespoke organized tour for just yourself, that's fine. But you would be a group of one. So every tour group, whether it's one person or whether it's, you know, we generally do them up to 20 people, but, you know, Chinese tour groups up to 50, 60 people, two tour guides and one driver. And they are with you all the time. So your minimum unit is four people. All the itineraries have to be planned in advance. And that doesn't mean that they are laid down uh, by the state. They're actually um, created from a list of places which can be visited and a smaller list of places which it's implied can be visited. 
And so we design the itineraries that we uh, that we sell to people either for them or we make group tours in advance and they can join them. So like a buffet or an a la carte option. But there is an assumption with that the North Korean government has decided everyone's going to do the same thing. That's largely how Chinese tourism works, actually. Everyone books the same tour and that's run very cookie cutter. But honestly, that's because that's what the market um, demands. Our market is a little bit different to that, a, a, a lot more demanding, in fact. So then when you you go on the tour, you're with your guides all the time. The guides, they translate, they show you around. People are worried about being followed. You won't be followed. You will be doing the following. The guides uh, <laughs> lead from the front. They're not spies. They're not agents, blah, blah, blah. They're just people who you know are trained to translate and explain things. So you can have you know, wild, paranoid fantasies about them or any kind of fantasies that you like, in fact. But they're, um, you know, they're just tour guides for the expanded mandate. And what you do depends on when you're there. Now, most people that get in touch with us do tend to say that they want to go off the beaten path, do what tourists don't do. But when you boil it down, most people's first visit, they do want to do the kind of canon of highlights. You know, the War Museum, the Jutia Tower, the Pyongyang Metro, the Mass Games, the DMZ this kind of thing. And if it's in summer, maybe go to the coast or maybe go to some mountains, something like that. And so the reason that a lot of tours look very similar is because that's actually what it's demand driven. That's what people want to do. And, you know, it, it would be weird to go to Paris and not go to the Louvre and the Eiffel Tower <laughs> and the Arc de Triomphe just because, you know, everyone goes there. Boring. The tourists go there. They don't do it because they have to. They do it because they're legitimate highlights. But really, the highlight for most people is not one place or one monument. It's almost always the fact that they had a chance to interact with some North Koreans. And of course, this interaction is limited, largely controlled. It's not fake, but it's very um, much based on taking opportunities. If it's with like random Joe public, you have to, if you want to have any interaction with, you know, the people on the street, you need to do it when you're stood on the street when you're having a walk when you're in a park when you're at the fun fair and, and or a sports event that kind of thing you have to take your opportunities and it's that which people find to be the highlight because even though you know intellectually that the people of north korea are human beings with which you can share some commonalities it's one thing to know that and it's another thing to viscerally experience it and that seems like such a small thing which anywhere else would be absolutely no big deal whatsoever but in north korea that really is something which surprises and touches uh people very deeply and it's it's a trip that people remember for a really really long time and it's easy to be dismissive and think it's all some dog and pony cookie cutter show but it really it really isn't that and uh, you get you get out of it what you put in but you have to make the effort in the first place mm -hmm. it's it's uh we get special you know specialists coming we've done bird watching trips we've even had an American who came in simply for the roller coaster magazine uh, <laughs> because she wanted to go on a, the corkscrew roller coaster in uh, Manum Bay Park. Uh, uh, so, uh, and um, I, I think there are also events that sort of most, you know, most people go, as Simon says, points out, just to meet other people, meet North Koreans on the street, etc. And um, we designed a tour so we can get you as close as possible. Uh, but perhaps the other sort of side of things is the big events such as mass games, which is at 100,000 performance, strong performance in one of the biggest stadiums in the world. That that has a big attraction, as do military parades, etc. We managed to get sort of on the streets for that. So there are certain times of year when people want to go. Um, but also, if you want to be, you know, almost on your own, then you go 
in winter, it's you know, it's cold, there's very few tourists, and you might find yourself to be, you know, one in sort of 20 people, foreigners in the country uh, on a tourist visa. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that interests me most, and I've I've been kind of following you guys for a couple of years now, um, after running my first marathon, I've been really interested in the marathons, because you guys also organize tours for the marathon. Is that correct? Yep. Every April, the Pyongyang Marathon. Actually, its official name is the Mengyong Day Prize International Marathon, but that is a alienatingly long and complicated name. So we just refer to it as the Pyongyang Marathon. So we do tours there. In fact, we we're the exclusive partner of that event. So um, we then you know sub license uh, that to other companies in the field and try and maximize the number of foreign runners uh, who take part in it. So it's the you know the only time you're not with your tour guides in fact because none of the tour guides they are lovely but i mean none of them could they could barely catch a cold let alone catch you if you were running (laughs) that's not their forte and what is the route of the marathon um um, that's hosted there is it uh, throughout the city or what's what's the kind of the, the, the route of it it used to be a loop of uh the city a 10 kilometer loop it starts and finishes inside a big stadium, as Nick said. So you get this kind of Olympic start and finish, even if you just stroll it. Um, so it used to be a loop of the city. So one loop for 10K, two for a half and four for a full with, you know, little extra bits added on. A couple of people have used that. And the the brother of an exceptionally senior British politician, who I won't name, two years in a row decided he would run three loops and call it a full marathon and had to be disqualified twice. <laughs> So yeah, I'm not saying cheeky not British politicians, politicians who, uh, who, who struggle with honesty. It's their family. It's, it's but, a lot. It's, uh, a, it's but now on. it's now sorry. Now it's a more. Now it's been changed to and improved actually to an urban. I think they call it a return course where you basically run out and then um, there are various turning back points. So at the at the five kilometer mark you turn back for ten k, ten kilometer mark you turn back to do a half and so on. So it actually runs all through the city, past all the highlights, and then out a little bit into the uh, suburban countryside area to the Mangyongdae area, which is which gives the race its name. Now, that's the suburb of the city where Kim Il-sung, the founder of the country, was uh, born. And because the race takes place around his birthday, that's why the race carries uh, the name of his original neighborhood. But yeah, it's, it's a bit urban, a little bit countryside, and then a huge stadium finish with 50,000 cheering fans or at least 50,000 fans there's quite a few videos that are you know you can have a look at it and uh one of the sort of the highlights is actually running with these sort of old grannies coming out on the street and shouting at you to hurry up and move on you know because they actually it's the first time they have an interaction I I was running I remember running along at my pace as I just do half marathons and uh uh suddenly there's this woman with shopping uh and rustling by me running at my pace which is always a little bit embarrassing and it was uh, in fact it was one of the women who we'd, we'd shot one of the documentaries with um and it was the mum saying you know how are you come on keep going i said i mean, do a damn sight better if you didn't follow me love that's embarrassing but it, it's an amazing time and yeah to run into a state you know a full stadium to be cheered like a, an olympic hero it's uh yeah very uplifting yeah, I I just got done running the Athens Marathon, the uh, authentic oh, one. Oh, and I bravo. Thought, 
Yeah, thank you. And uh, this, the next one on my list, I think of, I can't think of a cooler place to, to to run it in is is in North Korea. So it was one of the reasons why I was really curious to have you guys on the podcast to tell a little bit more about your tours. Well, that's well, I mean, you know, at the moment, Simon will tell you. Uh, I mean, at the moment, yeah. the we can't take you in, sadly, uh, and that's a, an American policy, uh, a U.S. government policy, not a not a North Korean policy. We we started taking. When we first started, Americans weren't weren't allowed in full stop. The only time we took, we started tours in '93, I could only take in American tourists for um, a sort of a basically a, a big wrestling match, which had Muhammad Ali come over, and that was in '95. That was quite uh, the big bang in Pyongyang. Um, that was quite uh, quite an event. And that then was the it was that was the collision in Korea. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute. And then, uh, but then the other collision of uh, in Korea was when Americans were allowed back in for the Ararang Mass Games, and I think it was two thousand. Uh, what was when was it? Two thousand two. Two thousand two. So then American tourists came for the first time, and that was you know unbelievable because yeah, it, uh, having been closed from you know visiting by the north koreans to suddenly be allowed in the country that was that was quite an exceptional time it, it built up so that the largest um kind of number the largest number of western tourists going to north korea for several years were people from the united states mm. which is both surprising and not because you know it's the most highly populated western country so it's not that unusual um but this always surprised people that you know 20% of our market of the non chinese market were americans and then one day in September of 2017, the government in the United States decided that in order to not get in trouble in North Korea, the solution to that is to not go to North Korea mm-hmm. and and ban the use of a U.S. passport to go to the country. And that law, that ban has been renewed every year since then under mm-hmm. two different administrations. So I think there are a lot of people assuming that it was some kind of Trump policy, but that has been renewed every um every August, September since then. Mm-hmm. And out of curiosity, if someone has dual citizenship, are, are they able to come in on a second passport? Yeah, then it's fine. Okay. So you just can't it's, utilize the American passport. You to, I mean, you can't, that's exactly it. It's a ban on using, it, it's different to the Cuba ban. It's not a ban on using American dollars. So it's not from the Treasury Department. It's a State Department ban on the use of a US passport to enter or exit North Korea. If you just happen to have you know, there are a lot of people who are American who have a second nationality, but there are also a lot of people who have some nationality who also happen to be U.S. citizens. There's no difference between those people. If you're, if the passport you use for the border interaction is from whatever country it's from, that's that's where you're from, and your additional citizenship is completely irrelevant to us, to the North Koreans, and to everyone. Mm-hmm. That's good to know. Uh, we mentioned sport a lot, and you guys mentioned collision in Korea. Can you talk a little bit more about the role of sports um, in in North Korea and maybe any kind of sport sports exchanges that you guys um, have have helped with or have worked with or know about in the past? Yeah, it's one of the few areas which is it's not non political because everything is political, but it's it, it's at the non political end of the spectrum uh, in North Korea, and it's one of those things that doesn't require. Um, you know, people competing against each other or with each other to share a language, as long as they understand the rules. So it's one of those truly universal things. So we've taken in amateur teams to play uh, football, you know, soccer, um, basketball, volleyball, cricket, 
what else? Ultimate Frisbee, Frisbee. as it's called. Yeah, yeah twice. Um, all kinds of stuff, really. Uh, we've been involved in big events such as taking in a professional uh, women's uh, football team from the UK to mark the 10th anniversary of UK North Korean diplomatic relations. Now, they played a game that was on TV. You know, there's only one channel. So they played on 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 that channel. They were well beaten. But, you know, football <laughs> was the big. Yeah, let's say. And that's the biggest the story. Perhaps the biggest story sort of outside that was the the documentary we made on the football team of 1966, the North Korean World Cup team of 66, who came to Britain as the sort of the, the, who was hosting the World Cup as a thousand to one outsiders, and then uh, got through to well by beating the Italians one nil, probably the the top team uh, at that tournament, and kicking them out. Uh, they got through to the quarterfinals. Um, absolutely incredible uh, turn of events. So we that sort of that film. Um, it's called uh, the game of their lives. Not to be confused with the uh, the American version, which is uh, you can get it on Vimeo. But the American version is is of of the Americans beating the British uh, of football. Never again. Um, <laughs> but it's going to happen soon, actually. But uh, that that led. That sort of there was a great sort of film that was actually not only just shown sort of throughout the world uh, on for, you know BBC films and shown throughout, but it was also shown in North Korea almost every year, and it was uh, it just shows you know that sport somewhere along the line you know can work it can it can create sort of a, you know a common uh, a theme and of course what was lovely about it there was a time in North Korea where the, the, there was a bit of an impasse it was again to do with the nuclear. Uh, situation and uh, th- what was wonderful is the 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 British embassy and the other embassies agreed to have a football match with the their North Korean counterparts and Pak Duik the the scorer of the goal against Italy in '66 was one of the biased referees who made sure the North Koreans won. So you know it it is a lot of playoffs. Once you once you the great thing in that country is I, I suppose is serendipity. If you start something. It's very likely you, you, you're going to cause a, a reaction. You have also, guys, gotten into film. Can you kind of tell us where the inspiration for that came through and kind of what you're doing in that in that area? Yeah, we we started making documentaries with a, a, a director called Daniel Gordon, who wanted to know uh, what every single British football fan wants to know is what happened in in 1966 to the North Korean team, who on their return, having been well, I don't really want to give it away, but they lost one of their matches and uh, returned and uh, to North Korea. And the story was that they were imprisoned and never seen again. Uh, that was until we saw them again uh, and we, we made a film on them in, in 2002. It's called The Game of Their Lives. And again, if you want that, that's on the Vimeo link, which we can add on later. Um, and that sort of got us into filmmaking. After making that film... Uh, I think I think we said we'd never make another film again in North Korea. It, it was exhausting. For no one's fault. It's just it's just they, that was probably one of the first. That was the first sort of documentary where we're actually interviewing people rather than just filming. Um, and that, but we did then lead us. Uh, the mass games came up. We thought, well, you can't not put that on film. So we followed two girls and the mass games. And at that time, I was sort of busy filming, and Simon was. Uh, studying in teaching English in China and various bits and pieces so he came on board and sort of he was helping us at the same time move North Korean football players to England the the, the team of 1966 and 
eventually it led to the final documentary, the one on the Americans who crossed over in the 60s, the four defectors who crossed over from South Korea to North Korea. And again, never to be seen again, crossing the line. Yeah. <laughs> so that was quite a classic. And having made three three documentaries and, and a sort of couple of other other ones that we sort of associate produced, Simon and I thought, well, you know, what the North Koreans need is not documentaries. They they want a sort of a fun film, you know, something that'll some entertainment because most of their films have a very North Korean trope, which is basically, you know, you sacrifice, you you, you learn through your, your, your throughout the film of your error of your ways and th- and the, you know the wonder of the leader etc and we thought well enough of that let's let's make them a film for entertainment so we came up with a script about a coal miner who uh, wants to become a trapeze artist and it's a girl and we cast her from the uh, from the circus we found someone there and we we made our own feature film and it went to Toronto uh, film festival and South Korea was shown, it was the first foreign film shown to a foreign audience. First, sorry, North Korean film shown to a foreign audience. It was the first North Korean film uh, shown to a South Korean audience. And there's, there's perhaps one little anecdote there where we, we stood after making the film, We all, all the whole office and everybody turned up. We were at the Busan, one of the biggest film festivals in the world. Mm-hmm. And we were waiting for the South Koreans to come back and, you know, lambast us. You know, what, what on earth are you doing? How could you film in North Korea? And the first question came up and this guy stood up and he said, it's nice to know that grandmother, that, sorry, it's nice to know that mother-in-laws in the South. Oh, God, sorry. I hope, I hope you can edit this. I hope, <laughs> so he said, I hope you know that mother-in-laws, in the, I hope, uh, it's nice to see that mother-in-laws in the North are the same as mother-in-laws in the south oh, and that was just just what we wanted to hear beautiful uh-huh. speaking of is since you had a chance to spend some time in north korea and south korea what other similarities do you notice between the, the two cultures when you had a chance to go between the two countries i mean they were the same like, i mean obviously there have been other divisions of korea right this this mm-hmm. current north south division has not lasted uh, forever and um there have been previous times when the korean peninsula has been broken up occupied been bisected dissected and so on but there are you know commonalities and uh, you know you don't want to fall for this kind of slightly weepy national propaganda that comes out of mm-hmm. sides of, of everyone being the same at heart and so on and i'm not a i'm not a great believer in that kind of thing but you do find some commonalities you find a kind of a willingness to embrace um melancholy and a little bit of um over the topness in terms of popular culture let's say there's a lot of um melodrama in popular tv shows in north korea and in south korea that seems to be something that people have much more of a stomach for than they than they might do elsewhere um but i mean the the main obvious things are things which go back before the division right there's a lot of culinary similarities even if access to foods and two ingredients is very different now still the core sort of classic korean foods remain the same uh, north and south um, soju and kimchi soju and kimchi exactly you know always <laughs> soju and some kimchi, even if it's slightly different so uh, you know it's it it's a kind of a priori piece of knowledge in north korea that north korea and south korea are destined to be the same that they're divided by hostile and jealous outside forces and that this, um, you know, in the end, destiny will 
will reveal the sort of uh, malfeasance of this situation and will reunite the two countries under the wise leadership of someone or another, no doubt. Um, but, you know, there are regional, there are always regional differences, even in the most united of countries, and that may play a part. But anyone who's spent a lot of time in South Korea will find things to be familiar with in North Korea. You know, the, the music is different, the films are different and so on, but they'll find a certain sense of of something uh, something familiar enough for them to to recognize. And I would say vice versa as well, because, you know, there are a lot of us who have spent far more time in North Korea than they have in South Korea. So, you know, uh, it, it may seem that North Korea is the alien one, but I've always um, felt when I went to South Korea, God, this is a bit odd. It's a bit like going to normal Korea, but, but everything's much shinier and, and and there are far more cars, that kind of thing, you know? Like I've mm-hmm. gone, most people are like, oh my God, going to North Korea is like going to the past, but it's not. Going to South Korea is like going to the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine that. And out of all those years that you guys have spent in North Korea, are there any kind of experiences or moments that kind of really stand out? I mean, I watched Dennis Rodman sing happy birthday to Kim (laughs) Jong-un. That's a tough one. (laughs) So while Kim Jong-un himself sat, you know, 20 yards to my right. So that to me was, yeah, that, that stands out to me. How was that? How was that moment like? What was the atmosphere during that uh, that dinner and 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 that and that moment? During, I mean, that was at the basketball match. That was mm-hmm. Dennis. Dennis gave a slightly rambling speech, which mm-hmm. somebody has had to translate, and they didn't translate <laughs> what he was saying. They translated what he was supposed to be saying. But he gave a big speech about how he'd been criticised for going there and and so on. And then he said some rather sycophantic things about about Kim Jong-un, which, you know, he didn't need to do because that gets said by everyone else there. And then he started singing Happy Birthday to You, but he sang it at such a sort of irregular cadence. And also what what was missing at the time was that nobody in North Korea knew that this was Kim Jong-un's birthday. This wasn't advertised at his birthday event. His birthday, unlike his father and grandfather's, was not and is not a national holiday. He just, so everyone in North Korea knows happy birthday to you you know of course they know that song but they don't know it when it's you know not obviously his birthday <laughs> so this is the reason why no one joined in at first because they were like what the hell's this guy on about so and also of course, they were waiting for the translator to to jump in and, and the translator was wondering what he was on about too the whole thing was just exceptionally bizarre again like very very odd moment but you know absolutely fascinating and exactly the kind of thing that shows the north koreans hey these People from the outside world, they don't spend every day of their lives plotting our downfall and our, uh, you know, and and creating a bad situation for us. Sometimes they're just, you know, doing something else, singing songs, attempting to play basketball while drunk, that kind of thing. That's uh, that's that's what happened there and then. They must have a really good impression of us if we've sent them our best Ric Flair and then Dennis Rodman on top of that to <laughs> cement <laughs> That, that is soft a good power, impression. man. That is that is soft power, and that's you know that's that's the best of America. That's what I always tell the North Koreans. You know, they sent they sent their elite. Yeah, we did. The branding on that was point. It's just they they know what to expect. They're like, all right, we're not leaving this country. We're staying here. <laughs> that was sort of that was also emphasized when I was I was at 
uh, the airport we're waiting uh, for a group or something. And then my guides, North Korean guides, came roaring up and said, Nick, Nick, something strange, something strange. And this was early 2000s. And we've got a group of American tourists, but they all seem to be very ill. I thought, what, what, what do you mean? So I ran downstairs with them. And what it was, it was a group of basically ladies from um, L.A. who'd all had, all in their 70s or 80s, and they'd all had um, face facial reconstruction, plastic <laughs> surgery. And the North Koreans just thought that something happened to them in the plane, like it had gone too fast. And the wind <laughs> Uh, we had again another case of us saying, "No, no, it's normal. Don't worry. Don't panic." <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, there have also been uh, other famous people who have been uh, in the film industry as well, trying to document life in North Korea, and one of them has been Michael Palin. Is that correct? Yeah. That Can was, you kind of just that describe? Trip, mm-hmm. That was a trip that we arranged, and that Nick Nick was with with Michael Palin on the trip. Mm-hmm. And what 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 was uh, his objective in Korea? What was he trying to um, when document? He made, when Pel- yeah, when Pelin had made his uh, first sort of round the world in eighty day program, he he'd only got to South Korea, so he'd always wanted to. You know, he got the DMZ, and there's a little clip in the film where he looks over uh, when he was a young lad, and and then you know said you know what what goes on. So he's always been fascinated with the North. We. Um, we basically were contacted by him and said, "Look, we want to be want, want to have a chip in." An amazing man, I have to say. I take my hat off to him. He's uh, he's as sharp as any journalist we've ever worked with, and uh, testing, you know, for the Koreans. But um, what was wonderful is when he arrived. I think there was this sort of feeling, "My God, you know, I've I've landed in in something pretty tough here, not something I like." And slowly and slowly, the, the the guides and him. So you see it over this this period of sort of fourteen days that we're there filming them coming together, and uh, it's a very beautiful for, just for that fact that the fact that he's such a, a wonderfully emotional, uh, in tune man, yeah. and also very empathetic. Yeah, empathetic. Yeah. So it was. We've done a few travel shows like that, but I think that's the best one. And there have been other you know documentaries made there undercover like some and and a lot of them do fall apart because th- there seems to be a need in the presenter to to you know be the one who stands up to north korea and you know there was a, a tv show in on the bbc some years ago with the political journalist um god whose name i can't remember now how, how amateur of me where he you know really needed that moment where he um you know he he spoke truth to power but the thing about speaking truth to power is you have to speak it to power, not just shout at a tour guide. Then you just look like a, an obnoxious bully. So mm-hmm. that's that's what he managed to do instead and then tried to sort of reframe it as, oh, I went there and I stood up to them. Because North Korea is the kind of place that, that you know, is really frustrating and for no one more than journalists. I mean, there was also an event when they opened their new war museum, I think it would have been 2013. And had a lot of foreign journalists in to cover that. And this is one of those very, very rare cases where all these journalists were gathered. And then Kim Jong-un himself walked by. And then one British journalist shouted out something like, Mr. Kim, do you have a do you have a message for the West? And of course, didn't get a reply. And then later on, this was claimed that, oh, yeah, the first journalist to, you know, to question Kim Jong-un. It's like, that's not that's not questioning. That's just shouting at someone. So. You know, there is a, a kind of desperation to squeeze and eke a story out of 
everything. Whereas in reality, if you watch the Michael Palin show, what he does very well is to sort of let things happen, let it flow through and over him like the force and <laughs> and you know and find the magic within that. And you know, you can get a lot more by just sort of going, hmm, and raising an eyebrow and letting someone finish what they're saying than by going, nah, that can't be right. What about this? Blah, blah, blah. You know, so you know, I think a lot of the times people filming there do forget that not they forget that every North Korean they do have a certain commonality of viewpoints and so on. A lot of this is dictated and some of it is cultural and so on. But they are individuals and they do have their own thoughts, but not everyone is is able or competent to comment on every little thing. So, you know, when you have tour guides with you, they can't speak for the states. They can't speak for the government, as even though they sometimes will, you know, believe that they can. And a lot of people will say, we Koreans believe blah, 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 and say something which is absurdly broad and can't possibly be true. You know, there's no way that everyone believes the same thing in all cases. But I think, yeah, one thing about the Palin program is that he does show great empathy. And when he wants to have a kind of disagreement, you can make it implicit uh, without sort of forcing an argument. You don't need to have, you know, people yelling at each other to have disagreement. So he's very subtle. Mm -hmm. So this is so one thing we sort of say to tourists is that, you know, if you go and ask them what's the political system, what do you, what do you, you know, what do you have to do in the day, et cetera, you'll get a sort of pro rata sort of answer. This is the, you know, one that they've almost read from their guidebooks. So this is how we respond to this. But if you ask them, you know, how did you meet your wife, et cetera, then they'll open up. Then you get this other side, this sort of very personal side. So to treat them like automatons, you will get that sort of that you'll get that answer. But but to speak to them about personal things, you will, you know, enter the area of, wow, gosh, you know, there is, there is some commonality there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what are some of the biggest misconceptions that you believe that outsiders that have not had a chance to travel or spend some time in North Korea have regarding North Korea and North Korean life? People think, think that there's, uh, sorry, Nick, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, no. I mean, Simon, Simon will give you other, the, 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 another answer. But for me, I think yeah, I th we're not apologists for the the system. We're very well aware of of, of just how you know horrendous uh, the situation can be around there. So, um, the, sort of, the, I think the what it boils down to is is find eking out from from that chip from yourself you know understanding going in that with, with without preconceptions but always having as your baseline you know the western press and what have you because that is that is the situation in the country we're not there as as apologists so to to go into the country but with an open mind um that would be but but my sort of answer to that yeah i think the biggest misconception is one which is almost held accidentally. There's more than one person in the country. Uh, most people coming from outside, like they only know of one North Korean. Um, it's Kim Jong-un, of course. And, you know, he's a big part of a lot of people's lives. But the idea that everyone wakes up in the morning and thinks, oh, yawn, glory to the leader. And, oh, are the Americans still occupying the southern half of the Republic? Oh, yes, they are. Oh, bloody Americans. You know, this kind of thing. No, most people, they're just engaged with getting on with their difficult lives. You know, and even the even the the class of people who live in Pyongyang who tend to be better off, their lives are still very difficult, right? So most people's daily concerns are the health of their parents, the education of their kids, trying to have a little fun, 
trying to ensure that their wife is prettier than their old friend's wife and that their husband makes more money than so and so you know really boring everyday pedestrian things which aren't exciting and aren't newsworthy you know the reason you never see this in the news is because it's dull and far too relatable whereas nuclear tests mass military parades bombastic declarations from the national media these are far more newsworthy but the average person they do spend some of every day doing some leader glorification and that kind of thing but honestly if you think that their heart is 100% in that and it's not just rote and going through the motions then i have a bridge to sell you you know most most people's you know genuine concerns at the front of their mind day in day out are money food fun sex you know that kind of thing there's the same stuff with everyone else you know so they are you know they can be a relatable bunch of people even if there's a lot of things that that go on there which are unrelatable mm-hmm. a favorite story from that is is the white stick story Simon. i don't think you've got time to tell that one we did yeah we did have a chap who when we went to the war museum maybe 2005 i think quite a long time ago with a group of american tourists at the time american tourists had to go in separate groups um for no good reason and that was fortunately abandoned soon after but he asked what he thought was a an inopportune question i can't even remember what it was you know so the kind of thing you think is daring but has been asked there five times that week and he was convinced and may well still be but uh, he was convinced that the tour guide in the museum who dresses in military uniform but isn't actually in the military it's it's cosplay you know put her hand in her pocket and activated a device which sent some kind of wave shock wave into him disturbing his guts and caused him to to need to rush off to be sick it wasn't the 10 beers that he'd had the night before it was entirely this experimental weapon nearly 20 years ago and you know you would think that this would be the kind of thing routinely deployed in certain states he said he'd read about it in some kind of, um, you know, th- th- that it was some kind of experimental Israeli weaponry or something like that, brown noise generator or something like that, whatever they call it. But this was in the pocket of a North Korean museum tour guide. And this is the kind of thing that, that a lot of people will experience in North Korea and think, yeah, you know, that could be true. Loads of mad stuff goes on here. Like, why not this? Whereas if you just apply, you know, good old Occam's razor and think like, is that, is it, prob- is it that? Or is it that, you know, you, you know, it's just the, you know, your sort of half cooked egg on top of 10 pints of beer um, <laughs> repeating on you, you know, far be it for me to ruin someone's sexy story. But that definitely didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think everybody wants a sexy story. That's. Yeah. Because one, one of the questions we're asked most commonly. It's like, where's everybody going? <laughs> you know, you can ask me the same questions on the streets of Paris. I haven't really can't tell you. Uh, you know, very often you, you, you're not being followed, but, but you know, you, you're basically not that important. If you were important, you certainly would be followed. But I'm a bunch of tourists. Sorry, they don't really. Uh, they get enough of them to sort of. They haven't got the manpower to to sort of follow us all around. And but it's a lovely thing to come back from North Korea with a story like the room was bugged. This was bugged. I found this. I found that. Oh uh, yeah. I mean, if you wanna if you wanna turn on the taps in the bathroom every time you wanna have a sensitive conversation, then you know, good for you. But honestly, yeah. imagine going on holiday somewhere and thinking. 
that what you what you could say to your roommate or something is so vitally important that the intelligence apparatus of a whole country would would <laughs> would put resources into recording it and then taking no action on it because there's never been a case of someone you know saying that they didn't like Kim Il-sung's mausoleum in their hotel room and then having to you know be called in for questioning you know that it, it just seems you know it's you know but it's good stories everyone likes everyone likes a good story but there are plenty of good stories without you having to conjure them into existence mhm absolutely and uh i also was just out of curiosity wondering you guys had produced a uh, film crossing the line whatever ended up happening to james dresnick is he still uh, residing in north korea he is, but he's dead. <laughs> he, uh-huh. uh, unfortunately, he's, but I think what's, uh, Joe is a, an incredible character. Um, absolutely uh, remarkable uh, man. But I mean, I thought, I thought meeting Joe was remarkable. But what perhaps was more remarkable was that we were filming. They said, would you like to meet his children? So uh, that was, uh, that was something, you know, that that's where, what we've just been talking about was where you know what what actually goes on in North Korea is is far more unbelievable than than anything that you would uh, anything you could ever imagine. So not only did I meet his 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 sons, but uh, and then we we filmed them there. But also he remarried, uh, and his wife was a Korean woman, but from a from a his her mum had been Korean and her father had been a Togolese diplomat. So you know, I mean, if if you want the stories we can tell you you can, we could we could we could write a long a long long book but yeah meeting meeting him we also met uh, uh well as well as joe we, we also met um i mean there were four defectors uh absha uh had died but the jenkins was was also mm-hmm. there at the very start before he went back to japan and these two didn't get on but i mean again that's a film it's a film that just when we were making it, we couldn't quite believe what was going on. So well worth the watch because it just unravels and it just gets more mysterious and stranger as you go on. Yeah, I really enjoyed that uh, documentary. And I always recommend that to friends who are interested in <clears throat> North Korea because it was it, you're you're kind of watching it and you're kind of like not believing what's what's going on throughout the yeah. throughout the movie. So, yeah, kudos on making a great film on that. Um Thanks. I know that now that uh, North Korea has been closed down uh, or your your tours have been closed down, can you kind of uh, comment on how that's looking, the situation in, in North Korea, and if there's any um, any chances of it opening up in the near future? I mean, it, it's not the kind of place to issue criteria for reopening. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the upper levels of the government there, they don't consider themselves to be accountable to anyone, so they don't have to explain their actions. They they say what's going to happen and and then that happens so they closed their border around january 20th 2020 so a little over 3 years ago and it is still closed and recently there's been a lot of people getting in contact with us assuming that it's about to open because i think that they believe that what happens in china necessarily happens in north korea but north koreans closed their own border rather than china closing it for them and with the covid situation at the time of recording being pretty much out of control in china and the honesty level in reporting it in China being less than we would hope, you know, why on earth would North Korea close their border for three years and then open it at a time when of maximum danger? That that just doesn't 
confused. They do a lot of stuff that you think is unreasonable, but they're not completely mad. That would be uncharacteristic. And so we just can't see it happening uh, in the in the really short term. You know, they this is not the first time they've closed their border to prevent uh, a pandemic. They did the same thing um, in 2003, the SARS, for instance. So, um, you know, this is this is characteristic. And they've shown a willingness to take it on the chin long term. I would think that it's going to be some time longer. So China is not open now. I mean, tourists can't go to China, but but people with residency and Chinese citizens can. But, you know, the thing about North Korea's closure is it wasn't just to tourists. It was to everyone. So North Koreans who were overseas in January of 2020 are still overseas. Mm-hmm. You know? And there, there were people whose families popped back to Pyongyang for a little visit and um, left their kids behind. And those their kids are still not with their parents. And they can't just jump onto WhatsApp or whatever chat program you choose to use and speak to their families in North Korea. They can't do that at all. They are, you know, estranged from them now. If they run out of money, nobody can wire them any money. Their their embassy is not going to help them out. This is a true being marooned. I mean, you know, those of us who spent most of the pandemic in China, you know, there was a lot of complaint, oh, we're stuck here and so on. But no one was ever stuck there. You know, you could always leave. It was always a problem of logistics and economics. But for North Koreans, it's not. So even now, the trade that goes on is ships unloading themselves without any human-to-human contact, and then goods being quarantined for for weeks and months. And by train, you know, a driver in a sealed cabin uh, running goods across the border and then returning. So human beings don't enter North Korea for three years. It's not, not something that happens. So, you know, you imagine what that's like for North Koreans. It's easy to think, well, you know, better to be in China than North Korea. Sure. But what about your family? What about like everyone you know? You know, your stuff, your, you know, what you imagined you would be doing. It's not the great benefit that a lot of people think. So as much as we would like to complain, oh no, you know, our business has has, has been hit by a very, very hard time. You know, we sell a product and we can't sell that product um, for years on end. But there are people who we know who who have been cut off from their lives and everyone they know for years with no support uh, from anyone. That that is that's really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine. And you guys are also organizing tours to different um, countries as well. Is that correct? So, some of them, but some of them are still closed too. But mm. they're at least you know it's it's a little easier to communicate with people in Turkmenistan than it is with people in North Korea, for instance. So, you know. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much today for, for taking the time to tell us a little bit more. I really enjoyed it. He- hearing some of these stories were, um, were entertaining and also insightful for me. So I really, really appreciate it. Uh, if people were interested in finding out more information uh, regarding your tours or some of your films or art or artwork, where could they find you guys? They can go to the Choreo Tours website, choreogroup.com, or to the, they're interested in art, they can go to the Choreo Studio website, choreostudio.com. They can find us on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, uh, all that stuff. They can email info at choreogroup.com. They can direct mail us. They can, you know, send a raven, all kinds of different, different things. No, just honestly, do your best. We'll always reply. No question is too stupid. 
<laughs> Send Ric Flair over on a personal flight. <laughs> <laughs> Anything but Ric Flair. <laughs> <laughs> He's had his chance. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, thank you so much. I, I hope to one day join you guys uh, when uh, the marathon takes back up. I, that's been on my bucket list, and I will definitely. Uh, Thanks, Jordan. We'll so, so yeah. So, thank you guys so much, and and we'll keep in touch. And best of luck, and hopefully things reopen, and you guys can get uh, going again. Thank you very thank much. You very much. Well, that does it for this week's episode of Travel Tribe Podcast. Join us each Tuesday as we release new episodes with great adventures. Until then, remember, the most dangerous thing you can do in life is to play it safe.